Hey everyone, first off, with For Me Strange, want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we are recording this podcast, and pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, past, present and emerging. Let's go. Hello and welcome to Thermia Strange, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia and Pacific, and the College of Arts and Social Sciences, produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association, and coming to you from the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science. I am your familiar stranger today, Simon Theobald, together with my familiar strangers, Sophie Pizzuto. Hello. Saeed Alavi. Peace. Hello. And Alex Deloyer. Hello. Sophie Pizzuto is a third-year PhD candidate at the School of Archaeology and Anthropology at the Australian National University. Her research interests are on social media and the gig economy in relation to the transport community. Saeed Alavi PC, or Saeed, is working on caste among Muslim communities in southern India and has been a guest on the show with us before, once a long time ago, back in first year. Thanks all for being here. Before we dive into today's discussion, did you know that we have a Facebook chats group? Join us at the Familiar Strange Chats on Facebook and provide some valuable insight on today's episode. Sophie, what are we thinking about this week? So I have been working on a presentation and a paper for quite a while now. Basically is about a fight that I had in the field that has been haunting me ever since it occurred, basically. It sort of like was a fight that I had with one of my main friends and research participants. And it basically centered around the fact that I was there as an ethnographer as well as her friend. And I think those two roles often conflicted with one another. And that sort of like led me to think about how, you know, in in the porn industry, there's like a lot of talk about hustling um, and like in sex work at large. And I sort of started thinking about how that can relate to academia and like the hustle in academia and how when we are like as researchers are in the field and we need to sort of, we have like a limited time, limited funding, how we really need to focus on gathering data. My sort of conflict was that I was there as her friend. That was like one of the primary things that I was providing to her friendship because especially for like famous people and a lot of my participants were relatively famous in like a broad sense of the word. She wanted me to be her friend and often she did not want want me to record or take notes because she had like a very carefully created public persona and image that she was putting out there that's very important in the porn industry but also more generally if you're like a famous person and as a consequence I was sort of always conflicted about my duty to like gather data but also to be her friend and not gather data. And those two were like in direct conflict with one another. So it led me to bring this question to you today about what do you do if your duties as a field researcher um, conflict with your duties to give back to the community that you're in? How do you balance that, balance those two things? Yeah, look, I think that's a really good question. And it's something a lot of us have to deal with in the field. Fortunately, I was working alongside sort of like low ranking government functionaries, which did mean I dodged some of these ethical dilemmas because they were pretty keen to get their work out there. I wasn't looking at a particularly controversial field, but it was something I really had to ask myself going in, particularly when, at least from my perspective, sometimes there are even conflicts within your field site. So if I had have if I had have come across I don't know some sort of corrupt practice 
well, one, that informs my research. But two, I've got to be careful about who I could potentially dob in and get in trouble and who's my responsibility to, say, the government functionary who I might accidentally get fired or perhaps the program beneficiary who's potentially in the line of fire, who's missing out on the program due to corruption. Yeah, and I think it's actually even worse if there's a conflict of interest between yourself and your participants because I feel you have to sort of like deal with your own ego and your own sort of conflicts of interest, as I said, yeah. Sometimes it's about balancing weighing up between yourself and your participants' needs. I don't know. I think this is a dilemma I'm also going through, but um, maybe one needs to work this out in one's own field site. So I would be more interested to know how you kind of managed this conflict in your own field site. I mean, I think ultimately... Because my entire research, as I think it's most people's research, is thanks owing to them giving me the data and letting me be there in their lives. I think my primary responsibility was to them. So I sort of, I just like put the notepad down, I guess, and I was there for her. But of course, I couldn't be there for her nonstop 24-7. So even that comes like with limits. I think it's easier said than done to be like, all your research participants' needs are always first and foremost. Yeah, Yeah, how far do you push that that ideal situation or that ideal? I think it also comes down to how you view what the discipline is trying to do. So whether the discipline's responsibility ultimately lies to academia and the idea of producing knowledge or whether it lies first and foremost to informants, in which case if they tell you to put the the pen and paper down, then effectively you have no option other than to do that. But if you feel like your moral duty is to disseminate this information, then I guess you have you have to strike some kind of equilibrium between what your informants want and what you can reasonably achieve with regards to your duties, to your responsibilities rather, to the academic world. Yeah, I think taking that sort of broader picture of the duty to the discipline is kind of where I was also going with this paper because I think we are like increasingly pushed to hustle to like take this back the original idea of the hustling and I think one of the problems that I kind of want to touch on with this paper is that we are like as junior academics increasingly pushed towards you know showing our allegiance or pledging our allegiance to the discipline and to the data gathering putting second the needs of our participants by like you know having less funding less time in the field more competition back home we're just like, I think, increasingly pushed towards being in a way more exploitative um, and less caring about our participants' needs. And I think that's like a big problem that I see. Thanks, Sophie. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for. Said, what are you thinking about this week? I think I'm also thinking along the lines of Sophie. I have just returned from fieldwork. I'm getting Yay. my head around um, the data that I have collected. And uh, one of the groups that I focused on was barbers in Kerala. They have been working in a patronage mechanism till the 1970s, meaning that they would go to their patrons' houses and do the hair cutting, shaving, and those kinds of things. And until uh, since the 1970s, the st- shops, barber shops, started coming up, and then their work started moving to a direction of uh, seeing it as labor but though such changes have happened and their socioeconomic conditions have improved 
still they are looked upon as different as being unequal compared to other muslims though muslims in general claim that islam is egalitarianism islam proclaims equality between believers and all that one of the recent controversies in kerala was that uh, a religious scholar said that uh, barbers should not be followed while doing prayers and they should not be made the leader of the prayer so this stoked a huge controversy and reflecting on these kinds of experiences um, barbers have been many barbers have been personally asking me you know what can you do with your research to change the perception of the community and to change these kinds of inegalitarian practices among muslims so this is something that i have been wondering and what i could do have you faced these kinds of dilemmas in your own field work i mean i always think about what i can do for the community coming from like a uh, Uh, LGBT advocacy point that sort of attracted me to my topic in the first place. I've in a way sort of like had to put that I think a little bit on the back burner because I sort of started realizing that a lot of my participants didn't necessarily need they didn't really need my advocacy. So my conundrum is like I think a little bit the other way around because it's like what do you do if you think you're going to like be the big savior or the big advocate of this issue and there are a lot of issues i think in sex work so i think taking it to a more like structural analysis could be helpful for sex workers at large but what if those specific participants that you're working with they didn't need you you advocating for them because the ones that i worked with were very successful a list performers that saw me more as a nuisance than like a source for help going back but i think in some ways related vein do you feel that you could do much in my field i've had people asking me like can you like get a project by the australian government to come and help build a road or something and i'm like i am so sorry like that is not i have none of those connections that is not a thing i can help so i had to keep promising less and less and it felt awful at every point to be like look i'll write someone a letter but that's all i can do i have no sort of authority in this field were you running into similar experiences or do do you feel that you could have an impact in that field side no actually this is the same dilemma that i'm having for example these kinds of inegalitarianism is kind of lived through every day you know for example a marriage is an important institution in which this unequal mechanisms are working out such things i cannot change i will tell them that i will publish a book or i'll publish an article and it may contribute to changing the perceptions the discourses and those kinds of things but this is hard you know i think that's a really good point though because i think sometimes people underestimate the relevance of understanding as a mechanism of help itself and i think anthropology that becomes an activist kind of anthropology often at least for me is problematic i think development studies and developmentalism and so on activism is its own thing and anthropology is its own thing but one thing anthropology can do is increase the understanding that a broader community has about a particular niche within that community or a particular subgroup within that community and that was what i at least think about my work in iran is that i can't really repay can't repay the kindness and warmth that my interlocutors in the field gave me in in any kind of material way but what i can do is i can try and make their life worlds better understood 
by others. And that helps in the kind of global scheme of, was it Margaret Mead who said that anthropology is about making the world safe for human difference? I think there's something to it uh, in that capacity. Um, yeah, I think actually like we have as um, academics this tendency to think about, you know, changing discourses and like contributing to a discourse. But uh, going back to my conflict actually and how to give back, I think one of the major ways that we can give back, this is in a way more practical way. My informants, at least a lot of them, a lot of those that I interacted with, they didn't really care so much about the politics and the social advocacy of things. But what they really cared was that they had someone who was there who was not a competitor, so not a, another performer, whom they could like be vulnerable to. And I think we as anthropologists, we like deal with the micro, the small, the you know, interpersonal. And I think if we're thinking about giving back and our contributions, we should also think about the small contributions that we make being the shoulder to cry on. Um, and I had that a lot in my field because there's lots of issues around loneliness in my field side. And just being that one person who was like there to listen was, um, I think, counts for a lot that we, we tend to underestimate, especially with people when someone's like depressed, you know, has, you know, mental health issues or is sad, is like extremely sad. Being that one person who listens can actually make a huge difference in that very moment. That's a great point to finish on. Alex, what are you thinking about this week? I've jumped in on the hot button topic of coronavirus. Social media is full of people buying toilet paper, epic amounts thereof. You go to Coles, there's nothing in the supermarket aisles. Actually, it was the other day when I was just checking out at Woolworths and I noticed everyone around me had two 12 packs of toilet paper. Mm -hmm. I was very calmly doing it and I gathered that was the sort of maximum amount that was socially acceptable to buy at that moment. That was enough to be like, yes, I'm stocking up. This is a serious endeavor, but I am not hoarding and being irresponsible. But they also have like now actual restrictions per customer in oh, place. Yeah, now we're down to like one pack per person or something in whatever it is. But it got me thinking about how do we perceive our relationship and responsibilities to those around us? Because I saw a post on social media that was telling people, please don't make fun of those who are stocking up on toilet paper. They're primarily doing it for their family, they might be wrong, but it comes from a place of care to their family. At the same time, those telling us not to stock up are saying, well, this needs to kind of come from a place of care about the wider community for those who other people can't afford it, other yeah. people just don't have access. My question to you is, do you think this is reflective of how people perceive their, I guess, social responsibilities to the wider community or to their close friends and family? And if so, what sort of messages do you think we can read into this. I see it representative of, I think, a sort of general lack of trust in like um, government and institutions. I think a lot of panic is because we just have like a very incompetent government and the way they handled the bushfire crisis. I think we like love to blame people for hoarding, but like I, I can't blame people for hoarding and like not thinking and that the government will come and fix this. I don't know. I, I I see a lot of, I agree with you, I see a lot of people on social media making fun of people hoarding. But I think it also emerges out of like a context of like uncertainty and like distrust institutions and government that I think needs to be taken into account. I think issue of hoarding also needs to be looked at in the broader context of virus spreading. You know, for example, Lombardy region in Italy has been quarantined. And if people are already thinking that if such measures are coming into play in Australia, things will be 
becoming harder for our own family and we cannot get get out to the streets and go to the markets so it's a kind of a general mechanism of a, to think of newton's law you know it's a kind of opposite reaction you know so you think it's justified I think Said has mountains of toilet paper at home. Know, is this no, message actually, I'm getting? I I only use the water. Following <laughs> <laughs> India. Me too. Good, good on me too. I've got so, a I've got a hose. But home. I have been having troubles finding a rice. Mm, yeah, sorry, so, I should say there are other staples. Toilet paper is the focus, yeah, yeah. but I mean, yeah, we have a social responsibility to like those that we care to, but I I'm not worried about that part. I'm I'm definitely a little bit worried about the social responsibility that we have. towards other people especially as you said people who are living from paycheck to paycheck and who can't afford to stock up mm. and then they come into a supermarket and then there's nothing there and that just reminded me of another thing i've seen a couple of arguments i've seen online or discussions i've seen online is is this also a result of you know classic neoliberalism we've been taught to think of ourselves as individuals Absolutely. for ages or small little nuclear units for ages and so have we had our ability to have like a big social consciousness undermined Absolutely, I think. I mean, there's no doubt about that. You're just encouraged to like think of yourself out there by yourself on this big cold marketplace and always prioritize your own interests over everyone else's interests and you get rewarded for it. No, I was thinking, for example, you know, our immediate connections when we think of our immediate connections we think of our family you know our kind of better relations has there been other kind mechanisms of conceiving community or if there was a crisis earlier the community has responded in a different way i don't know if there have been examples of that kind to say that this is neoliberal and this is individualistic and those kinds of things yeah i think it's a really solid point because of course you know it's not like any of us lived through the blitz in england and rationing and those sorts of things to be able to say were people different or the same you know the image that's come down is oh it all you know there's a little bit of black market but everyone just got on with doing what they were doing and yeah. but of course we have no way of actually verifying if that were true or not yeah 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 i mean it's also not monolithic right the the neoliberal logic i mean i think it's always inflected by like local community values and um I'm sure you could like m- m- turn this into like a research project but how like different communities respond locally to shortages in goods and services um there'd probably be more and less hierarchical organizations and responses to these kind of instances this is a great opportunity to finish this section of the conversation and move on to the next thanks alex pleasure so today we're going to end with me and what i've been thinking about this week is the thorny issue of criticism So I have finally after 6 months received my thesis revisions. He failed. I didn't, I didn't <laughs> fail. I passed with minor corrections. Yay. Uh, yay. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. There are indeed corrections that my examiners want me to make and to be honest I'm at the stage in my life where I just feel like not doing them. And the worst part about it is that the criticism is it's very constructive, often it's really penetrating, it's really intelligent and it's something that I definitely feel like I should do. And so I wonder what do you guys do? when you face this kind of dilemma knowing that you could do more work that there is constructive criticism out there but you just don't have the power to keep going i think you just need to take a holiday <laughs> i've already taken a, <laughs> taken a holiday <laughs> no it'll it'll help you um, i mean you see the criticism and you see its value so i think it's just like a matter of motivation for you at this point <laughs> to be fair you really you have actually touched on something that i do think would be a fair issue is that the times i've had to do it or something equivalent for the most part it's been something where i've received the feedback 
being able to put it aside, work on something else and come back to it with a little bit of distance. Whereas, I mean, you kind of just have to do them now-ish, no? I mean, I've got a, I've got a whole year. Okay. So but- I've got plenty of time to do them, but I, you know, I'm, I'm getting married, I'm moving overseas, I've got all these other things that I've got on my plate. And so there's a lot of reasons why, for instance, I would like to just get them done and over with. But at the same time, I can see that the insights that they brought to it would make it a much better thesis overall. And in some ways, they're pushing me towards angles that when I was at the end of my thesis, I was kind of just like, ah. And I knew that these were kind of critiques that people could make of the thesis, and then they did make them. And now I'm in the position of saying, well, do I keep on going or do I just try and wrap it all up in a pretty little bow and say I'll leave that for a rainy day? To give you some encouraging words, I think you're already like in a really good place that you like see the value of the criticisms. Having like edited an issue, a special issue myself, I think that um, there's different ways to responding to criticism. That's something that I like only learned being an editor um, that I like hadn't ever thought of because the only way to respond to criticism is like I always was my own way responding to criticism. But seeing that there's other ways of responding to criticism, I think the way you're responding is very good. It's very productive, and I think it'll ultimately like bring you towards um, a successful completion of your thesis. Um, <laughs> so what other ways of responding to criticism are there? There's, I think, two very unproductive ways of responding to criticism. One being outright rejecting everything um, and arguing with your editor or your editors about the points that were raised. It's like a confrontational and it, it seems like this impulse reaction that you have when someone like, you know, criticizes your work. But I think you need to just step back and see the merit in it, maybe not take it as far as the editor suggests. I think there's always a kernel of like truth in it. And then the other reaction, which is also counterproductive, but comes from like a very good place that I've come across, especially editing other grad students' work, is taking the criticism so much on board that you're like changing your argument 180 degrees. So one is like you have too much confidence in your argument and the other one is like you have no confidence in your argument. One of the things that I have found useful is that in these kinds of contexts where you are asked to change certain things or reflect on certain things which would affect the flow of your writing or your arguments, I would j- just put a footnote or endnote and kind of say that, you know, some scholars have argued like these and those <laughs> kinds of things. So it doesn't actually affect my arguments and also I'm also taking into account the criticism that are thrown at me. I think for me the issue is when it's something more substantive than just a footnote. What do you do when someone says like, rethink this concept or push further in your thoughts on this idea? Look, I'm the kind of person that's willing to give anything a crack. I've just had, it's a long story, an article that isn't even out like to peer review yet, but they basically asked me to come back and really take it from the top again. And, you know, on a certain level, that sucks for a moment, but they're encouraging me to write in a very different style. I'll I'll see where it goes. I don't know what the final product's going to be, but I do think sometimes it can be an extra string in your bow. Oh, sorry. Well, in this case, I'm being asked to take write in quite a metaphorical way. Do more with metaphors is what I'm asked, which is I study bureaucracy and my writing can be very dry. I do know this in and of myself. And so if I pull this off, that's going to be hopefully something else I can do, whether I do it all the time in the future and this is me moving forward. I doubt it. But at the same time, there's nothing wrong with getting a new skill under your belt. 
At least that's the way I look at it. This is also about, um, as Sophie said, you know, it's about whether you are confident about your arguments. And if you are confident, then it's about explaining or elucidating the kind of criticism, defending your own position, or to write it in such a way that they don't feel offended that you did not respond to their questions or comments so it's a play of language also in certain contexts yeah it's like an invitation to think sometimes as well i agree with what you guys are saying i think you've raised some really good points but i think there's the danger that you you can go on editing and changing something eternally that yeah, it becomes yeah. this this process of never ending kind of and i guess in some ways scholarship is a never ending particularly in the humanities is a never ending kind of journey But at some stage, you need to say the work is done enough that it goes out there into the wild. Yeah, I was going to say, on a brutally pragmatic level, you could also ask, what do you want to do with this later? If you're hoping to turn it into a book, there's probably good reason to maybe go down that road a little to at least explore those thoughts. But if you're somebody who's doing the PhD, not so much to turn it into a book. Some people do it for just other reasons to go into government or move up the next chain in, in government. Then you could probably also take a look at it and say, cool, thanks. I'll do the bare minimum, keep moving it along. Like you say, you've got to finish at some stage. That's all we have time for. I want to thank Sophie. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's all right. Said. Thanks for having me. Alex. Thanks for leading us. And me, Simon. Today's episode was produced by all of us here at The Familiar Strange. Our executive producers are Deanna Cato and Matthew Fung. Subscribe to The Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes and all the other familiar places, including Spotify. And if you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash thefamiliarstrange. Not the Strange Familiars, which is a fun podcast, just not ours. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet at TFS Tweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music was by Pete Dabrow. Special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, Martin Pierce, and Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep talking strange. <laughs>